Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our today co-host, Tina Smith. We love having Tina with us. Carol Zernial is on special assignment, and so Tina is graciously filled in. For those of you who don't know or haven't heard Tina before, she's manager of the Caregiver SOS program through the WellMed Charitable Foundation, has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in social gerontology, started her career working in the long-term care industry as an activity director and social service director, moved on to serving as the local managing ombudsman. People complained, and she listened at the Bear County Agency on Aging, the AAA as they call it, and she was an advocate for residents in long-term facilities. She's been with the Caregiver SOS program since September 2016, and Tina, we're delighted when you fill in. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. For those who don't know, what is social gerontology? It is. It's a word you don't hear very often, that's for sure, but it's it's essentially the study of aging. Uh, We are an aging society, and uh, just understanding all the all the things that go along with that. Carol uh, uh, Zernil, who's also a gerontologist, uh, likes to say that there's one thing about telling people you're a gerontologist at a cocktail party, it ends the conversation. It does. People don't know where to go. They have no idea what it is, first of all, and then they just kind of wander off. (laughs) But we're in a society where the numbers of people 65 and over are, are, are soon, if not already, far exceeding those 18 and under. Oh, by leaps and bounds, by leaps and bounds. And the 85 and older population is the fastest growing segment in our in our society. People are living longer, but as my mom used to say before she died, they're not necessarily living better. That's true. <laughs> and that's part of the challenge that in your work you face. Oh, absolutely. There's, you know, there are certainly pretty basic things that you can do to age well, but, you know, society sometimes or we, we develop those habits or just a basic understanding we may not have on what we need need to do to age well. And for those who don't know, the Caregiver SOS program, which is free, offered through the WellMed Charitable Foundation, what does it do? We, we recognize the important role that family members play in caring for an older loved one, whether they realize they're caring for them or not. But if they're taking them to the doctor or helping them with their medications, that can be a big job that builds on itself. So we provide the information and support for those family members so that they can keep on caring. And there's a website. Absolutely. Absolutely. At www.caregiversos.org, you can reach us there. And if you go to that website, you can also find podcasts of all of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. Yes, a lot of, lot of good information. Cool. Well, we're going to get some pretty good information now as we go to our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline as we jump to Northern Virginia, right outside of the District of Columbia, where Terry Corcoran joins us. And, Terry, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Now, you are a boomer, self-described, a full-time caregiver for your husband, who has been severely disabled mentally and physically for most of your marriage, which is still going at 19 years, a second marriage for both. He has a genetic neurodegenerative condition called fragile X tremor ataxia syndrome, which is a true mouthful. What does all that mean? 
Okay, well, first of all, he, he actually died um, in 2016. So um, I'm sorry. I'm, they, I'm into they didn't give me now, that. But, yeah, we were, we were married um, almost 17 years, and he did have this problem pretty much from the beginning of the marriage. It kind of crept in right at the beginning. Um, fragile X tremor ataxia syndrome is a genetic disorder, and it just there's a gene that produces a protein that the brain needs. It's the CGG gene on the X chromosome, and uh, if it, it sometimes it just repeats itself too many times. And with uh, my husband was actually a carrier. It's it goes through families, and it's really not that uncommon. It's just that. Uh, his syndrome was not discovered until 2001, which was after he was even having symptoms. But um, a full mutation, uh, when it fully mutates, uh, it mutates in a child that's born, and then they have some learning disabilities. Um, I think it's the most uh, the most common cause of intellectual disabilities in children. But my husband, being just a carrier, it went through him, and it goes through. You know, it one it hadn't mutated in him. But it went through him, so he had uh, too many repetitions, but not a full mutation. So my husband was brilliant his whole life. He was a Ph.D. laser scientist. He built lasers. He was absolutely brilliant. But with this premutation, what they call it, it later in life it will somehow get into the messenger RNA and mess up this protein thing and start killing off neurons and you know destroying the. I think it, it produces too much protein, whereas in the full mutation it's not enough. It's, it's something like that. It's very complicated, but, but basically it destroys the neurons in the brain. And it, so it's similar to Alzheimer's and other dementia illnesses. And uh, it's, it's different with everybody. Um, the older you get, if you have this muta- pre-mutation, the more your chances are of getting symptoms. So his symptoms started when he was maybe in his early 60s. And um, by the time we were married for five years, he was totally disabled physically and mentally. It just, um, he just had no coordination. He, he could use his arms and legs. They were strong, but he couldn't tell them what to do. So basically, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't feed himself. After falling for several years, then he just couldn't walk. And um, it just, he just needed everything done for him. Uh, and then his mind, the communication from the beginning of our marriage, the communication was difficult, and I really wasn't sure who I married, and it was a real struggle for me until I figured out five years later that there was actually something wrong with his mind because we just weren't communicating, and neither of us understood why, and he would lapse into apathy or anger, and I was totally clueless. Uh, but then, you know, we realized what was going on, and his communication was never good. In the last five years of his life, he probably barely spoke at all. Um, he needed all of his few food pureed. So I hired help in the house, home health aides. Um, I had strong men who could get him out of bed and get him in the shower, and uh, I helped a lot, too. I did a lot of the hands-on stuff, and it was just full-time and until he died, and he just... It was a peaceful death. He was at home, which I was grateful for. Uh, the, the illness just gradually slows all of your functions down, and I guess the last thing it takes is your heart and your lungs. All right, and, stay with me just a minute. For those who may have mm-hmm. just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. 
on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Tina Smith is here today filling in for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. And we're talking on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline with Terry Corrigan, telling us the story of her role as a caregiver for her husband. Uh, this was a second marriage for both of you. Uh, you know, we've interviewed over the years a, a lot of folks who, when they get into a second marriage and one or the other spouse develops issues, you know, says, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Right. How did right. you, you feel it, about it? Well, actually, the statistics say that 80% of marriages that are impacted by a serious illness break up. Right. But right. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I... It, it, it was a. I had, I had to overcome a lot of obstacles just to marry him, and it was, and I was so sure that I loved him and that he loved me. And then when he just wasn't like him, and he was some of the time, but some of the time he wasn't, and I just, I, I just couldn't give up. You know, um, I, I just couldn't give up on that. Um, and actually, what got me through was um, a faith. I joined his church that reached out to me, and I became a believing. Christian, Catholic, which I had never been before, but it that got me through, and the Well Spouse Association, the organization for spousal caregivers. Um, the support there was just wonderful, finding other people who were in the same situations, all with different illnesses, but all with spouses who had these long-term conditions that were not going to get better. Well, let's take you back to the beginning, where you first begin to notice that there's some uh, issues involving uh, your husband. Uh, what did you do, and and how did you suddenly find yourself in the role of a caregiver? Uh, well, he's the first physical symptom that happened was that he fell down about a month after we were married. He fell down when he was out playing golf with friends, and so I wasn't there. So he told me, and he said, "Oh, they called the medics, and you know nobody found anything wrong, and he couldn't." He didn't know why he fell. He had no idea. Um, it turns out, you know, we found out years later, it's just that his balance wasn't working. It's not like he passed out or anything, and all his vitals would be okay. And every once in a while, this would happen. He would fall down if he was doing something stressful. And I was, we just never happened to be there. Um, once he was moving heavy things from one office to another or something, and he fell down, and somebody there found him, and but but they but then he was okay. They helped him up. Um, and then he would gradually sometimes have trouble walking, and um, he would take he would just like freeze, and then if he rested, he could walk again. So um, that was just the physical things, and that that came on gradually, but then. Uh, the, the mental, I, I didn't really realize it was a cognitive issue because I had never known anyone with cognitive issues, and I just thought uh, that I'd been deluded and that he wasn't who I thought he was, even though I knew him for a long time before we got married. Um, it just, because, like, I mean, he was okay some of the time mentally, but then he would just, uh, you know, like I said before, lapse into apathy, or it would be as if he was angry at me, but, like, nothing happened. So that... You know, and I would just try to talk to him about it, and he he would just kind of clam up because, and he would get upset because he could see that I was unhappy, but he didn't know why. He didn't. Neither of us understood what was happening. So we would just have these conversations that went nowhere, where I would do all the talking, and he would just sit there and clam up, and you know, not know what to say. You know, it's interesting when you mention falling. It is a 
leading cause of injury for seniors, people 65 and over, uh, who do struggle with balance, who do fall. Uh, and, and very often uh, what physicians will tell you is if you've fallen once, odds are you will fall again. So that in and of itself to a doctor would not have been surprising. Well, what's funny was I started to, I, you know, told him to go to the doctor at the time. He could still drive and everything, and he went, and he came back, and he said, oh, you know, they said it was fine. Well, I called the doctor's office and spoke to a nurse and said, I really think he needs to see a neurologist. And, um, and, and she said, oh, no, really, I think it's just old age. And I'm like, old age? He's like 64 years old. I said, no, he needs to see a neurologist. And this, this was an HMO, so you had to get all the you know, proper referrals. Now, as you said that, Tina Smith smiled and started shaking her head, yes, because... <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, it's it's um, hard to, you know, you, you ask those questions, and you, the old age, you know, it's, it's an easy come-by, you know, it's an easy, uh-huh. it's an easy answer, and it's like, oh, it's just, just part of the aging aging process but, but it's really, not aging is not a disease you know things don't happen because you're getting older aging is not a disease right. and, and in your case uh, the thing i uh, are you from new york by chance no but a lot of people think i am yeah I'm, i was I'm it's your accent philadelphia. you have a bit no, of a, actually i'm from philadelphia but same idea I, to, I had a lot of friends from new york right. and i think i picked that up well uh, the reason i bring that up is uh, you know folks from philadelphia and from new york and I lived in that area for quite a while. They're like junkyard dogs. You don't let go when something you believe needs to be fixed. Right. You you go after it. So when that nurse said to you, ah, it's just aging, uh, right. you weren't ready to accept that. No, and, and I, I had to be like that for the five years it took to get him diagnosed because we did see a neurologist, and they took MRIs, and the MRI report came back, and it said, Things it didn't say it was fine. It's it, you know it said things like the signal and that signal. Of course, I didn't know what it meant, and either did this neurologist because she never followed up. He called her back, and she just never followed up because I guess she didn't know what it was either. Wow. At first, she, at first she thought when she saw him that it might be Parkinson's, which I thought because he would get very you know his arms were, would get stiff. But um, so then I took him out of the HMO to another neurologist and. He thought, well, maybe it was Parkinson's. Meanwhile, nobody could really read this MRI because they all, they just weren't sure. But um, they gave him some Parkinson's drugs, and he didn't have tremors. Now, that is a symptom of this illness, but it's just like the only one he didn't have. He just had all the other things. But he, the doctor thought that the Parkinson's drugs would keep him from falling. Well, they didn't do anything. All right, hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Tina Smith, who is filling in today for Carol Zernio. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. WellMed isn't your ordinary medical group. In fact, nine out of ten WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family. That's what WellMed patients in Texas and Florida said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. Maybe we rate so highly because we have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy. We help you feel your best so you can live your best life. Maybe it's because we give you an entire medical team dedicated to looking out for you. Maybe it's the way we treat you with respect, spend extra time with you, or how we really listen. 
The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. Get the care you deserve. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Discover the WellMed difference at wellmedfindadoctor.com. That's wellmedfindadoctor.com. Thank you so much for listening to us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Tina Smith, who is filling in today for our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and you can hear podcasts of all of our shows. All you have to do is Google, just Google, Caregiver SOS On Air. And if you don't know what that means, just ask a 10-year-old, and that will work out. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline uh, with a woman who's telling us an incredible story. Terry Corcoran uh, notices early on in, in her marriage there's some problems and difficulties that her husband is having, and then for five years uh, doesn't get a diagnosis. Uh, what was the problem that th- they simply couldn't diagnose? Well, the problem was that he started having these symptoms in 1999, and the syndrome that he had was not even discovered by medical science till 2001. Well, that would be a problem. So, yeah. <laughs> so nobody could have diagnosed it before then. And then it took us, like, you know, four years to find a doctor who had heard of it, because even though they discovered it at the uh, University of California at Davis in 2001, it took a long time for the word to get out. And there are still a lot of doctors that really don't know what it is or understand it, even though it's certainly gotten around the world um, more. But we found, we went to a fifth neurologist at one point because they all said different things and none of them really knew what it was. And the fourth doctor said, well, he really didn't know what it was. And so um, finally we went to, I think I took him to a different primary care doctor and he recommended this other neurologist. And we made the appointment with this fifth neurologist and we had sent him the records and the MRI report before we met with him. Well, when we finally met with him at the very end of 2003, this doctor, the first thing he asked us was, is there any mental impairment in your family? And I said, well, he has a grandson with fragile X syndrome because we knew that he had a grandson that fully mutated in, and they, they knew that it was a syndrome in children when it was a full mutation. But what they, you know, they didn't know about this intermediate thing that acted up later in life. And so the doctor said, well, I think that's what you have. And we were like flabbergasted. And he had just read the first paper that was published on this. And looking at my husband's MRI report, he thought that it sounded like that's what it was. And so he sent us for another MRI to look at certain things. And then uh, he said, we'll give you a a DNA test because that, and, you know, look at this gene. And just getting the DNA test took several months because nobody knew how to do it. And finally, they sent somebody to our house to take his blood, and they sent the blood up to Boston, and it took two months, like, to get the results. But when we got them, that's what it was. It was definitively that. And so, you know, and he saw the MRI, and so they said, well, yeah, that's what it is. Now, was Um, it helpful knowing what it was? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just really relieved, and I immediately got into contact with these doctors out at UC Davis, you know, and they wanted to see him because they weren't seeing many people with this, and they wanted to study him, and by that time, he couldn't walk. I said, I can't get him out to California, but 
Um, uh, you know, we sent his blood, we sent his MRI, and we kind of worked with them long distance over the years. Um, they met with him once briefly in Washington, just to look at him, and they would recommend certain medications or whatever, but of course no, nobody knew. It was just all, well, try this or try that, and there was no cure for it, but the, the fact that it was something so new kind of was, I was glad because I thought, okay, well, this isn't a death sentence. They're not saying it's Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I said, maybe we can work with this, you know. No, nobody knows what this is. And so I got a nutritionist, and I, you know, made sure his diet was good, and, you know, I got him physical therapy, and I just did everything I could just to keep him basically healthy. And, of course, the illness progressed anyway, but, um, you know, when he died, he didn't have anything else wrong with him. I mean, he never had any other issues. He was healthy. Basically, he had a real strong grip until he died. And um, I had a therapist come to the house in the latter years, like every three weeks, just to move him around and do what he could with him. And, um, I, I, you know, I just I did what I could. I worked with it. But obviously, you know, nobody survives this. As you learn more and more about the disease, uh, you've taken on a role of trying to reach out to help others? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, and I was desperate to find not only other spousal caregivers, which I found at Well Spouse Association, but other people whose husbands or fathers have this fragile X syndrome. So, uh, so we somehow got together through the Fragile X Foundation uh, Facebook page, which has grown over the years, and now there are people from all over the world on this Facebook page who have the illness or are caring for somebody with it. And so, you know, we share all of our stories and, and everything. So, um, and I've written many, I wrote an article for the Fragile X Quarterly on our whole situation a couple years ago, just explaining everything I did and what it was like living with this and caring for it. And, um, yeah, I've, I've just done whatever I could. And I, w- I wanted to get the word out about the illness, too. So I would write any outlet that I could find online. I would write articles about it just so people would know about it. And then the doctor that diagnosed my husband, unfortunately, got very ill after about a year because he was, he was fascinated and he wanted to work with this, too. But then he got ill and he couldn't practice anymore. So I had to find more other neurologists, and none, none of the others were interested in it. They didn't know much about it. I gave them all the information I could. I wanted them to be creative and, you know, try to be interested in this, but they weren't because he was their only patient that had it. And so I would get recommendations from the doctors out at UC Davis, or I would read something and I'd say to the doctor, well, can we try this or that? And they'd go, okay, yeah, sure. Hmm. <laughs> and so, I, And I went through about four more neurologists until he died, and I never found one that really was very helpful except for just giving them checkups and renewing the medications that the California doctors recommended. That's so, frustrating. Um, yeah, it was. it was. It was. I just felt like, you know, nobody really cared. It was It was just very frustrating. I think the sad answer is they didn't care. No, they didn't. You know, one shame doctor on them. even told me, she said, she said, well, you know, he's my only patient with this, so I really don't do research. If something comes across while I'm reading my journals, yeah, but she wasn't going to go look for it. So we'll just let him die. Wow. That's hard. It sounds like, I mean, just your whole journey been tireless. You just have had to really, especially with this disease being so unknown, you, mm-hmm. you've had to really fight for 
getting some sort of answers or talking to people. How did you keep going? She's from Philadelphia. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I I loved him. I mean, and I was I was lucky. I, I mean, I feel grateful that I loved him enough to do that. Um, and I just. I don't know. I just did. I wanted to be with him. That was it. I said, we're going to be together. Now, this is the only marriage we're having. We're going to be together. You're not going to a nursing home. You're going to stay at home where you're comfortable. And um, and and I, I don't know. It just it, it, it becomes something that you just get through one day at a time. And you just deal with one day at a time. And, you know, and you have breakdowns. And, yes, I cry. And I threw temper tantrums. And and but you know when you join a support group you realize that everybody does that in those situations that that's not unusual but you just you know i hang on to my faith and i had you know i mean i would call a priest every once in a while just to keep me from going over the edge and he'd come over and talk to me and so you know along the way you just find people that get you over you know these humps that you come to where you feel like you just can't go one more step and then somehow you do that's and nice for, you found for, a parish that delivers Oh yeah, absolutely. That's pretty and, cool. Yeah, and they're still they're still wonderful to me. After he died, they've just gotten me involved in so many things, and um, yeah, that that's just been my my saving thing. Um, and well, spouse also because people who go through support with well spouse when they become widows and widowers, we stay in the organization if we want to, and we're called former well spouses, and we still have support for each other. We have telephone support groups and just, you know, whatever. We're there for each other. I want to find out, uh, in just a minute, I'll come right back to you. I want to find out more about Well Spouse, and uh, it's available anywhere across this country, I'm sure. So tell us more about it. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host today is Tina Smith, and we're talking with Terry Corcoran, who is hanging out in Virginia, and she's on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline. Well, we are so pleased you were with us listening to Terry Corcoran, our guest on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline. She's in Northern Virginia across from the District of Columbia talking about her experience trying to help her husband uh, who developed a uh, really, really uh, rare but turns out deadly disease, and we'll talk more with her about that. Tina Smith is here today, our sit-in co-host for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. As you listen to... uh, Terry's story. What, what are you thinking? Well, you know, just uh, you know, she's she fought a hard battle. She, you know, she uh, didn't give up. But I thought one point that she she made is that she reached out to other people, which I think is an important. You know, care this caregiving journey isn't something that needs to or should be done by yourself, and so it's important to reach out, even if it's to someone to talk to, help out someone to come over. But we, you need to to build that team of people around you. When did you realize, Terry, that uh, you were a caregiver? And how did you find Well Spouse? Um, I don't know when I actually realized. I guess I realized I was a caregiver, you know, when he became totally disabled, and I had to, you know, I stopped working to take care of him. Uh, and then Well Spouse I found in 2005, uh, interestingly enough, through uh, we had gone to a prayer group that somebody said that might thought my husband would be interested in. So I was taking him to a prayer group, and there was a an older woman there who, who befriended us, and she actually had a son who was about my age, who was also a caregiver for a wife with MS. And I never met him in person, but he, he was 
he had help with, he was still working. I think he worked like a mid, an overnight shift in a printing company or something and had somebody stay with his wife, and then he would take care of her all day, and uh, he was just really devoted to her. And one day, he was in his early 50s, and he just dropped dead of a heart attack. Wow. Probably from the stress. And But meanwhile, before he died, at, at one point, I did speak to him on the phone once, and he knew about this Well Spouse Association, and he told me about it because he had read about it somewhere. And he never went himself just because he was just on this treadmill, and he just couldn't. He was taking care of her. He was working. But he told me about it, and I immediately called the contact person here in Northern Virginia and got myself to a meeting. And, I mean, I was just so grateful to find these people, you know, to walk into a room full of people who were all having ill spouses because I didn't know anybody else in that situation. You thought you were the Lone Ranger. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, and a common thing, too, is, you know, there's not a whole lot of support from from other people because they, they don't understand what this is, and this is not like, oh, somebody has surgery and everybody brings meals, you know, until right. they recover. But, the, I mean, this is, this is an, a long-term thing, so people don't, are not going to be there. So you were pretty much on your own. Oh, yeah. Friends, friends that you had hung out with fell away? Not really, but they did. I, I don't know. They were. They, I, I had moved to a completely different neighborhood. I moved into my husband's house. So um, I just, I was kind of between sets of friends, and um, I was just kind of starting my life over. But uh, so, well, spouse, between well, spouse and the church, I just made so many new friends. And they mostly became my friends, and still are. So, how are you doing today? Um, I okay. I mean, it's it's been hard, especially because he couldn't talk. So, I felt like he died, and this was never resolved. Like this all because he was never. We couldn't talk to each other, so it's just very it, emotionally. It's been really, really difficult, but. Uh, but the church has kept me busy. Well, spouse keeps me busy. I'm involved in many ways with well spouse. Between that and the church, um, you know, that keeps me going. I've been plenty busy, and I have all these new friends that I met through the years because of this. And um, I have two daughters and three grandchildren in the area, so I do see them sometimes. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm uh, the first year was was really horrible, but. You know, I'm getting better now. I've been into this widowhood for about two and a half years, and there are times when it's really hard, and um, it's never easy. It's not like you ever forget the person, and I'll always miss him, and I'll always kind of feel cheated that we never had a life together. So th- there's been a lot to get over, but being the support group person that I am, I went out and found all kinds of grief groups and <laughs> read books on grief and made a lot of widow friends in addition to my well spouse friends. So... You know, I keep going, and I, if I need to cry, I cry. So. To the caregivers who are listening, what, what kind of advice do you pass on? Uh, it, it's just hard to say because um, everybody's in a different situation, but definitely, you know, like it's, it's okay to cry. It's okay to scream. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to just carry a load like that without without being affected by it. Um, you do have to try to take care of yourself, which which I know sounds, you know, people say, oh, yeah, sure. You know, that's what I, people would say that to me, and I'm like, yeah, well, it's not so easy. But you have to just at least try to eat right and sleep right and um, just 
find some time for yourself during the day. Like even if it was if I could get a 10-minute reading break and or I would go out to lunch with friends while the aide was here and uh, have a piano that I like to play and just whatever you can do for yourself and, and definitely to try to have other people in your life. I mean, the support group has been, it was the best thing. And there are face-to-face support groups um, in many parts of the country. I lead one here. Um, but if you can't get out because you're caregiving, we also have an online forum that's always active, and I spend a lot of time on there um, just chatting back and forth online. It's a secure forum. You don't have to put your real name on there if you don't want. You can just, you know, let it all out, whatever's bugging you, and people will understand. It's non-judgmental. Um, I, I was, I was looking we, I was looking on the website. So do you have different groups for, I guess, different kinds of spouses, spousal caregivers? Like for I saw some for um, military spouses. And are, are there different groups that, um, that someone can join? Sort of. Well, it's all one group, but okay. the forum is broken down. If you want to talk, I mean, anybody can get on any of the groups on the forum. It's just broken down just so, you know, by topic. So, like, if you have a, if you're younger and you have children, then you post in the younger well spouses. But all of us can see all of it. It's just kind of, you know, breaks it down more just so that it's easier to find something that you might be looking for, you know, like military spouses or, uh, and I, I have one on faith and spirituality because some people might like to discuss faith and other people don't want to hear about it. So, you know, that's there. And if you want it, fine. If not, don't look at it. Um, we also have some telephone support groups. Also, we have a, a conference line that you can call into. So we have one for just general wealth spouses once a month. Anyone can get on, and you can just chat on the phone. Uh, we have one for widows, widowers. Then there's, I think, one for the younger wealth spouses. And um, I think there's another group that deals with certain problems, like if you dealing with doctors and dealing with hospitals and nursing homes and all those things. Um, and we also have some members who are separated or divorced, but they're still being responsible for the ill person, and so we give them support also. And, and so if somebody, because you mentioned that there are some, some areas around the country that have, like, on-ground, what you call on-ground support groups, the mm-hmm. places that people can go, if there's not one, well, I guess how do people find out where they are, and if they don't have one in their area and they're interested in getting one started, is there something that they can do? Right. Well, those are listed on our website, or you could call the office. um, We have a little office in New Jersey where the two women kind of coordinate things. Um, We, yeah, actually anyone who wants to start one can. If you want to start a support group where you live, the office and other people will help you, you know, the board of directors. You'll get all the help you need for for starting one. Um, And then we, we also have something called Connecting Caregivers, that if you want to be part of that, you just say, yeah, I'm opting in for this. And every month you will get emailed a map of the United States, and it shows you where other members are. So even if you don't have a support group, you can see, oh, there's a member there, and their email address will be there. So you might want to contact them and have coffee with them. So even if there's not a group, you can see if there are other members in your area. Are there a number of people that participate in that? In the Connecting Caregivers? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think so. I've, I've done that. I've reached out to a few people in my area. So um, I'm sure they have. It's interesting. You hit on, uh, and Tina and I were both looking at each other, smiling and nodding yes. One of the things that WellMed Medical Management and WellMed Charitable Foundation and 
Caregiver SOS on Air recommends is exactly what you did, and that is don't do this alone. Reach out, get help, go to a support group, talk to people, don't isolate. Right, exactly. Now, was that self-taught or somebody said to you, hey, you need to do something here? Um, I don't know. I think it was, it was just an instinct that I just, I said, God, I just want to find other people with this. Like, as soon as I got, I spoke to the doctors in California, I said, can you tell me anybody else that has this? And they gave me the phone number of another person in North Dakota or something that had it. And I called and I spoke to his wife. That's cool. um, I think that's just an instinct for me to just want to talk to people who are in whatever situation I'm in. And for those, yeah. for those who may face this disease in the future, it's a lot easier now to get diagnosed? Yeah, but although some people still say that the doctor won't give them the test, or I think that's what he has, and they won't get it. And not every doctor will know about it, and they won't, just, and they won't order this DNA test. So it, I don't know. There's still, some people are still getting resistance, even though they're researching this all over the world. It's a lot more known than it was before. Uh, We've taken part in some research studies, but um, I don't know. People are still reporting that the doctor's not diagnosing it. And the the shorthand is Fragile X? Yeah, well, actually, his syndrome, Fragile X syndrome, is is the full mutation in the children when you're born with it. What my husband has, they they shorten it to F-X-T-A-S, FAX-TAS. Right. The, yeah, so that's what we call it, and that's the premutation. It's the partial mutation. Did your husband know he was a carrier? Um, before? No, no, okay. Uh, we we knew that his son had this. I mean, his grandson had this, but I mean, no one else in the family did. But um, I, I think his daughter, who had the son who was affected, though, I think she was did some research when. He was diagnosed with it, and somehow it came out that my husband did have two first cousins that were put in an institution or something, because back then that's what they did, because they were mentally disabled. So, you know, we figured out it was on his mother's side, and he, well, he had to get it through his mother. If it was on the X chromosome, he wouldn't have gotten it from his father. So, yeah, but we didn't, you know, and the way they figured it out was that at, at this clinic out at UC Davis, the... Uh, they were working with the children that had this. And while they were working with these children, they heard the mothers talking about their fathers who were falling down. The grandfathers were falling down. They were you know, acting strange and all this. And so that's, that's when they started studying it, and they realized that this happens. Is it uh, men and women who are at risk? Um, yeah, it is, but it seems to be, they think, maybe worse than the men because... Women have two X chromosomes, so they still right. have a good one, which um, there are more and more women coming out with, they have different kinds of symptoms. They don't have cognitive problems as much as maybe physical ones. Hmm. Um, they have some hormonal problems, or they all have balance problems and things, but they, um, they, mentally they seem to be stronger. Let me ask you this, because we are flat out of time, Terry Corcoran. For folks who want more, more information, do, do you have a website folks can go to or one you recommend? For WellSpouse? Yes. For the, uh, yeah, WellSpouse is www.wellspouse.org. And that's W-E-L-L-S-P-O-U-S-E. And for uh, FaxTAS is our website? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that that's at factstask.org, F as in Fred, X, T, A, S, dot org. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm sorry about not knowing that your uh, husband had passed away. We We certainly send our condolences to you. Oh, that's okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate you coming on. Okay, thank you. Do you thank still you. root for the Eagles? Uh, sort of. As much as I like football, I really don't pay attention to it. But, ah, yeah. Okay. You take <laughs> care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Terry Bye-bye. Corcoran, uh, that's a fascinating story. It wow. really is. It really is. I mean, it just shows that. Makes whatever problems we have seem really small. It does. It does. Interesting. She had an uphill battle. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Tina Smith, we thank you for listening to us on Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. WellMed isn't your ordinary medical group. In fact, 9 out of 10 WellMed patients would recommend WellMed to friends and family. That's what WellMed patients in Texas and Florida said in a 2017 Press Ganey survey. Maybe we rate so highly because we have a better approach to health. WellMed doctors specialize in keeping people on Medicare healthy. We help you feel your best so you can live your best life. Maybe it's because we give you an entire medical team dedicated to looking out for you. Maybe it's the way we treat you with respect, spend extra time with you, or how we really listen. The Medicare annual enrollment period is October 15th to December 7th. Get the care you deserve. Pick a plan that opens the door to WellMed. Discover the WellMed difference at wellmedfindadoctor.com. That's wellmedfindadoctor.com. Welcome to Take 10. We bring you Take 10 at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air shows when Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert not only in caregiving but addiction as well, joins us. And Peaches Hall is here pinch hitting. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie, when we talk about caregiving and caregivers, uh, we know that uh, in some instances caregivers become really very angry. Uh, Abuse of Care recipients, for example, is often caused by the ones who are closest to them, including the caregivers. So if you become that angry, shouting, yelling, pinching person, uh, that can't be normal, but it does happen. Why? Well, there's a couple of good reasons for it, Ron. Anger is like a continuum, if you will. On, On one side of the continuum, there's rage and external anger and what you're kind of talking about probably is this, this sort of bluster that, that we can't get a hold of. It, it, it's, it's really driven by resentment, if you will, and expectations. The expectations, as we often say in caregiving, are always the seeds of resentment. So we go into it with expectations, and usually those expectations are never met. Therefore, we start getting angry, and we start lashing out at our environment. But the other piece of anger, which I think has to be addressed here, is that anger turned inward in a caregiver's life. And that journey, if it's turned inward, leads to depression, which is very pandemic among caregivers as well. So anger is, is a theme that has to be reckoned with with caregivers. It's a great topic. 
Well, one of the things I used to talk to some of our staff about was, of course, that the families, they're experiencing loss. They're losing their husbands or their fathers or their, you know, it, it, it's it's horrible for them. So that's that pressure on top of it. But also at times, especially for staff, I always say sometimes their bad habits were developing. Once you start using potty words, it's easier to use potty words. Once you start losing your temper, you have to kind of inspect what you're doing and say, am I handling this the right way? And we always ask them to 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 take apart what they're doing, look at it deeper. I totally agree with you. And so anger management for a, a caregiver, it's a process. It mm-hmm. truly is. But we have to identify, which I think is the most critical issue, the stressors. We enter caregiving and we often kind of adapt, if you will, to caregiving in an emotional way, which is, I know this is psychobabble, but it's a lot of our unresolved issues we may have had with our loved ones in childhood. And we had never really dealt with them, and all of a sudden we get hit between the eyes with this concept called caregiving for them, and then these stressors start popping up. And the stressors, which obviously don't help us stay calm, create this anger and this sort of misunderstanding and incites rage. And so it's critical for a caregiver to understand that anger management is vital. What would be some of the common stressors or uh, the things that folks have not dealt with uh, when they were younger, that suddenly come to the front. Well, I'm sure Peach is going to address this as well. The first thing I always see is we kind of recreate our drama and trauma. So, if Mama wasn't that, you know, happy with us as a child, or we were, let's say, the middle child, and our loved one got more attention, or the younger was the more uh, cajoled and, and hugged. Uh, those resentments would come out later, especially if you're the primary caregiver, which means you're the one actually taking logistical care of your loved one. And then you're not only dealing with the stressors of your loved one, which could be your mom, dad, brother, sister, whomever, but you're also dealing with the clinical stressors of long-distance caregivers who are actually, you know, also invested in this process and could be torturing you from afar. Yes, and most of them are, how did I get this? Just because geographically I'm closer? How did, I, how did this happen? So sometimes you become a caregiver you had no idea you were going to. Not until mom is oh, in the ICU. Right. Mm-hmm. So you fall but into care. Like you, you, you do, and, you, and it's like Vegas, and, you, and the dice fell the wrong way because all of a sudden, like he just says, you become the primary caregiver, which, you know, every one of that family had the possibility of it, but the one that's probably the closest, the one that's probably the one who is selfless, the one that is, you know, ready to take on the martyr piece, if you will, will probably become the primary caregiver and take it from all angles. And also, there are times that you become a caregiver and don't even know it. You're in a house, somebody hurts themselves, somebody gets a new diagnosis, somebody has to have some kind of extra help, and then all of a sudden, the wife or the husband has become a caregiver. They don't even know it. I mean, that's happened to me where my husband had gone through some bad health, and I'm like, why am I so cranky? Crap, I'm a caregiver. So, you know, you don't even know it. I'm sure Iran's wife knew it from the very beginning over the last several weeks. We've, we've well, even dealt with that. Not, not his anger, but hers. No, as, as my wife would explain, she is a non-enabling caregiver. I think she's a saint. Who, uh, who has to deal not only with me, but three little kids. Mm. So it's a heck of a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky so to still be alive. Perfect. Yeah, and I think your, your your wife understood one thing, too, that I hope. I mean, that it's really impossible to have these, these unreasonable expectations, and that we have to forgive ourselves immediately as a caregiver 
knowing that we're not perfect. I mean, we can experience this episodic impatience or anger, but we also have to realize that this is totally a natural response and that we have to give ourselves credit for the thousands of times that maybe we exhibited patience. This is why I think it's critical when you're dealing with these explosive emotions, which impact not just your loved one, but the family, that a caregiver should seek out therapy immediately when they self-identify themselves as a caregiver. Or help. Yeah, or help, for sure. But they need a safe place Mm. where they can talk about the tantrums. They need a safe place where they can talk about this lack of ability to self-regulate. They need a safe place where they can find out answers or have their ego and or themselves reflected back to them so they have some real insight in the process. That's a really good point. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. Take 10 follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us. He is a nationally known psychotherapist, expert not only in caregiving, but addictions as well. And Carol Zerniel on special assignment today. Peaches Hall is filling in. So, Dr. Jamie, uh, when you mention therapy, uh, for folks who don't have a therapist on their speed dial, how do you find one? Well, you can call your plan. That's always the best way to do it, I gather, to, to really get the names. But I do write for Psychology Today, and I do think the highlight of their website is the ability to find a therapist who has the criteria, if you will, that you're looking for. All you need to do is go to Psychology Today, put your zip code in, and all of a sudden pop up this wonderful array of therapists. And you can actually screen them based upon their work with seniors or caregiving um, and really call them and interview them until you feel very, very comfortable with them. So I would suggest that uh, for sure. And then also the reimbursement or the commercial or uh, plans that they take are listed there as well. So it's psychologytoday.com? You bet. And they'll say, find a therapist as soon as you get to that front page. And that's where I would click off and put your zip code in. Back to anger for just a moment. When folks are out of control, when caregivers uh, reach a point where, uh, you know, I can't take this anymore. I got to get out of here. Uh, yes. Respite is not a bad idea. But many folks respite, who are. Yeah, yeah, but many folks who are caregiving don't have anyone else to step in. So true. Uh, Peaches, I think, especially with Caregiver SOS and the wonderful uh, uh, products that the foundation has, like uh, teleconnection and and the ability to be connected there, um, can offer some answers. And respite is vital. And that creating a family of choice Mm -hmm. as as opposed to relying on your family of origin is a great way to do that. And there are assisted livings and memory cares that will offer a a one-night or maybe a three-night respite, and it's wonderful. That is the best spent money, just to give yourself a time to clean your house and to shop and just to have some time to yourself, and then you pick your loved one up and you start back again. And is there a way, Dr. Jamie, uh, to bring your extended family or family of choice uh, into helping? Yes, and first realize on the stressor side, we have an old saying in the addiction world that if you're that's HALT, H-A-L-T. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're probably going to be a trigger for, for anger, uh, definitely. But again, to your point, remember this after you've identified the stressors, I would always get a third party in to deal with the family uh, of, of origin. But your family of choice is really the people around you that you can rely on most, your faith-based community, if you will, the support groups that you visit, Make sure you get out, and if you're a caregiver, don't isolate. There's nothing more to conjure up anger 
than to be isolated as a caregiver. Boom, last word. Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Peaches Hall, and Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.